Chapter Two, Part D of the Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Five, Chapter Two, Part D of the Sources of the General or Public Revenue of the Society. Article Two taxes upon profit or upon the revenue arising from stock the revenue or profit arising from stock naturally divides itself into two parts that which pays the interest and which belongs to the owner of the stock and that surplus part which is over and above what is necessary for paying the interest this latter part of profit is evidently a subject not taxable directly it is the compensation and in most cases it is no more than a very moderate compensation for the risk and trouble of employing the stock the employer must have this compensation otherwise he cannot consistently with his own interest continue the employment if he was taxed directly therefore in proportion to the whole profit he would be obliged either to raise the rate of his profit or to charge the tax upon the interest of money that is to pay less interest if he raised the rate of his profit in proportion to the tax the whole tax though it might be advanced by him would be finally paid by one or other of two different sets of people according to the different ways in which he might employ the stock of which he had the management if he employed it as a farming stock in the cultivation of land he could raise the rate of his profit only by retaining a greater portion or what comes to the same thing the price of a greater portion of the produce of the land and as this could be done only by a reduction of rent the final payment of the tax would fall upon the landlord if he employed it as a mercantile or a manufacturing stock he could raise the rate of his profit only by raising the price of his goods in which case the final payment of the tax would fall altogether upon the consumers of those goods if he did not raise the rate of his profit he would be obliged to charge the whole tax upon that part of it which was allotted for the interest of money he could afford less interest for whatever stock he borrowed and the whole weight of the tax would in this case fall ultimately upon the interest of money so far as he could not relieve himself from the tax in the one way he would be obliged to relieve himself in the other the interest of money seems at first sight a subject equally capable of being taxed directly as the rent of land like the rent of land it is a neat produce which remains after completely compensating the whole risk and trouble of employing the stock as a tax upon the rent of land cannot raise rents because the neat produce which remains after replacing the stock of the farmer together with his reasonable profit cannot be greater after the tax than before it so for the same reason a tax upon the interest of money could not raise the rate of interest the quantity of stock or money in the country like the quantity of land being supposed to remain the same after the tax as before it the ordinary rate of profit it has been shown in the first book is everywhere regulated by the quantity of stock to be employed in proportion to the quantity of the employment or of the business which must be done by it but the quantity of the employment or of the business to be done by stock could neither be increased nor diminished by any tax upon the interest of money if the quantity of the stock to be employed therefore was neither increased nor diminished by it the ordinary rate of profit would necessarily remain the same but the portion of this profit necessary for compensating the risk and trouble of the employer would likewise remain the same 
that risk and trouble being in no respect altered. The residue, therefore, that portion which belongs to the owner of the stock, and which pays the interest of money, would necessarily remain the same, too. At first sight, therefore, the interest of money seems to be a subject as fit to be taxed directly as the rent of land. There are, however, two different circumstances, which render the interest of money a much less proper subject of direct taxation than the rent of land. First, the quantity and value of the land which any man possesses can never be a secret, and can always be ascertained with great exactness. But the whole amount of the capital stock which he possesses is almost always a secret, and can scarce ever be ascertained with tolerable exactness. It is liable, besides, to almost continual variations. A year seldom passes away, frequently not a month, sometimes scarce a single day, in which it does not rise or fall more or less. An inquisition into every man's private circumstances, and an inquisition which, in order to accommodate the tax to them, watched over all the fluctuations of his fortune, would be a source of such continual and endless vexation as no person could support. Secondly, land is a subject which cannot be removed, whereas stock easily may. The proprietor of land is necessarily a citizen of the particular country in which his estate lies. The proprietor of stock is properly a citizen of the world, and is not necessarily attached to any particular country. He would be apt to abandon the country in which he was exposed to a vexatious inquisition, in order to be assessed to a burdensome tax, and would remove his stock to some other country, where he could either carry on his business, or enjoy his fortune more at his ease. By removing his stock, he would put an end to all the industry which it had maintained in the country which he left. Stock cultivates land, stock employs labor. A tax which tended to drive away stock from any particular country would so far tend to dry up every source of revenue, both to the sovereign and to the society. Not only the profits of stock, but the rent of land, and the wages of labor would necessarily be more or less diminished by its removal. The nations, accordingly, who have attempted to tax the revenue arising from stock, instead of any severe inquisition of this kind, have been obliged to content themselves with some very loose, and therefore more or less arbitrary, estimation. The extreme inequality and uncertainty of a tax assessed in this manner can be compensated only by its extreme moderation, in consequence of which, every man finds himself rated so very much below his real revenue, that he gives himself little disturbance though his neighbor should be rated somewhat lower. By what is called the land tax in England, it was intended that the stock should be taxed in the same proportion as land. When the tax upon land was at four shillings in the pound, or at one-fifth of the supposed rent, it was intended that stock should be taxed at one-fifth of the supposed interest. When the present annual land tax was first imposed, the legal rate of interest was six per cent. Every hundred pound stock, accordingly, was supposed to be taxed at twenty-four shillings, the fifth part of six pounds. Since the legal rate of interest has been reduced to five per cent, every hundred pound stock is supposed to be taxed at twenty shillings only. The sum to be raised, by what is called the land tax, was divided between the country and the principal towns. The greater part of it was laid upon the country, and of what was laid upon the towns, the greater part was assessed upon the houses. What remained to be assessed upon the stock or trade of the towns, for the stock upon the land was not meant to be taxed, was very much below the real value of that stock or trade. 
whatever inequalities therefore there might be in the original assessment gave little disturbance every parish and district still continues to be rated for its land its houses and its stock according to the original assessment and the almost universal prosperity of the country which in most places has raised very much the value of all these has rendered those inequalities of still less importance now the rate too upon each district continuing always the same the uncertainty of this tax so far as it might be assessed upon the stock of any individual has been very much diminished as well as rendered of much less consequence if the greater part of the lands of england are not rated to the land tax at half their actual value the greater part of the stock of england is perhaps scarce rated at the fiftieth part of its actual value in some towns the whole land tax is assessed upon houses as in westminster where stock and trade are free it is otherwise in london in all countries a severe inquisition into the circumstances of private persons has been carefully avoided at hamburg every inhabitant is obliged to pay to the state one-fourth per cent of all that he possesses and as the wealth of the people of hamburg consists principally in stock this tax may be considered as a tax upon stock every man assesses himself and in the presence of the magistrate puts annually into the public coffer a certain sum of money which he declares upon oath to be one-fourth per cent of all that he possesses but without declaring what it amounts to or being liable to any examination upon that subject this tax is generally supposed to be paid with great fidelity in a small republic where the people have entire confidence in their magistrates are convinced of the necessity of the tax for the support of the state and believe that it will be faithfully applied to that purpose such conscientious and voluntary payment may sometimes be expected it is not peculiar to the people of hamburg the canton of underwald in switzerland is frequently ravaged by storms and inundations and it is thereby exposed to extraordinary expenses upon such occasions the people assemble and every one is said to declare with the greatest frankness what he is worth in order to be taxed accordingly at zurich the law orders that in cases of necessity every one should be taxed in proportion to his revenue the amount of which he is obliged to declare upon oath they have no suspicion it is said that any of their fellow-citizens will deceive them at basil the principal revenue of the state arises from a small custom upon goods exported all the citizens make oath that they will pay every three months all the taxes imposed by law all merchants and even all innkeepers are trusted with keeping themselves the account of the goods which they sell either within or without the territory at the end of every three months they send this account to the treasurer with the amount of the tax computed at the bottom of it it is not suspected that the revenue suffers by this confidence to oblige every citizen to declare publicly upon oath the amount of his fortune must not it seems in those swiss cantons be reckoned a hardship at hamburg it would be reckoned the greatest merchants engaged in the hazardous projects of trade all tremble at the thoughts of being obliged at all times to expose the real state of their circumstances the ruin of their credit and the miscarriage of their projects they foresee would too often be the consequence a sober and parsimonious people who are strangers to all such projects do not feel that they have occasion for any such concealment in holland soon after the exaltation of the late prince of orange to the stadtholdership a tax of two per cent or the fiftieth penny as it was called was imposed upon the whole substance of every citizen 
Every citizen assessed himself and paid his tax, in the same manner as at Hamburg, and it was in general supposed to have been paid with great fidelity. The people had, at that time, the greatest affection for their new government, which they had just established by a general insurrection. The tax was to be paid but once, in order to relieve the state in a particular exigency. It was, indeed, too heavy to be permanent. In a country where the market rate of interest seldom exceeds three per cent, a tax of two per cent amounts to thirteen shillings and fourpence in the pound, upon the highest neat revenue which is commonly drawn from stock. It is a tax which very few people could pay, without encroaching more or less upon their capitals. In a particular exigency, the people may, from a great public zeal, make a great effort, and give up even a part of their capital, in order to relieve the state. But it is impossible that they should continue to do so for any considerable time, and if they did, the tax would soon ruin them so completely as to render them altogether incapable of supporting the state. The tax upon stock, imposed by the land tax bill in England, though it is proportioned to the capital, is not intended to diminish, or take away, any part of that capital. It is meant only to be a tax upon the interest of money, proportioned to that upon the rent of land, so that when the latter is at four shillings in the pound, the former may be at four shillings in the pound too. The tax at Hamburg, and the still more moderate taxes of Underwald and Zurich, are meant in the same manner to be taxes not upon the capital, but upon the interest or neat revenue of stock. That of Holland was meant to be a tax upon the capital. Taxes upon the profit of particular employments. In some countries, extraordinary taxes are imposed upon the profits of stock, sometimes when employed in particular branches of trade, and sometimes when employed in agriculture. Of the former kind are, in England, the tax upon hawkers and peddlers, that upon hackney coaches and chairs, and that which the keepers of alehouses pay for a license to retail ale and spiritous liquors. During the late war, another tax of the same kind was proposed upon shops. The war having been undertaken, it was said, in defense of the trade of the country, the merchants, who were to profit by it, ought to contribute towards the support of it. A tax, however, upon the profits of stock employed in any particular branch of trade can never fall finally upon the dealers, who must, in all ordinary cases, have their reasonable profit, and, where the competition is free, can seldom have more than that profit, but always upon the consumers, who must be obliged to pay in the price of the goods the tax which the dealer advances, and generally with some overcharge. A tax of this kind, when it is proportioned to the trade of the dealer, is finally paid by the consumer, and occasions no oppression to the dealer. When it is not so proportioned, but is the same upon all dealers, though in this case, too, it is finally paid by the consumer, yet it favors the great, and occasions some oppression to the small, dealer. The tax of five shillings a week upon every hackney coach, and that of ten shillings a year upon every hackney chair, so far as it is advanced by the different keepers of such coaches and chairs, is exactly enough proportioned to the extent of their respective dealings. It neither favors the great, nor oppresses the smaller dealer. The tax of twenty shillings a year for a license to sell ale, of forty shillings for a license to sell spiritous liquors, and of forty shillings more for a license to sell wine, being the same upon all retailers, must necessarily give some advantage to the great, and occasion some oppression to the small dealers. 
the former must find it more easy to get back the tax in the price of their goods than the latter the moderation of the tax however renders this inequality of less importance and it may to many people appear not improper to give some discouragement to the multiplication of little alehouses the tax upon shops it was intended should be the same upon all shops it could not well have been otherwise it would have been impossible to proportion with tolerable exactness the tax upon a shop to the extent of the trade carried on in it without such an inquisition as would have been altogether insupportable in a free country if the tax had been considerable it would have oppressed the small and forced almost the whole retail trade into the hands of the great dealers the competition of the former being taken away the latter would have enjoyed a monopoly of the trade and like all other monopolists would soon have combined to raise their profits much beyond what was necessary for the payment of the tax the final payment instead of falling upon the shopkeeper would have fallen upon the consumer with a considerable overcharge to the profit of the shopkeeper for these reasons the project of a tax upon shops was laid aside and in the room of it was substituted the subsidy seventeen fifty nine what in france is called the personal tail is perhaps the most important tax upon the profits of stock employed in agriculture that is levied in any part of europe in the disorderly state of europe during the prevalence of the feudal government the sovereign was obliged to content himself with taxing those who were too weak to refuse to pay taxes the great lords though willing to assist him upon particular emergencies refused to subject themselves to any constant tax and he was not strong enough to force them the occupiers of land all over europe were the greater part of them originally bondmen through the greater part of europe they were gradually emancipated some of them acquired the property of landed estates which they held by some base or ignoble tenure sometimes under the king and sometimes under some other great lord like the ancient copyholders of england others without acquiring the property obtained leases for terms of years of the lands which they occupied under their lord and thus became less dependent upon him the great lords seem to have beheld the degree of prosperity and independency which this inferior order of men had thus come to enjoy with a malignant and contemptuous indignation and willingly consented that the sovereign should tax them in some countries this tax was confined to the lands which were held in property by an ignoble tenure and in this case the tale was said to be real the land tax established by the late king of sardinia and the tale in the provinces of languedoc province dauphine and brittany in the generality of Montsebon, and in the elections of Agen and condom as well as in some other districts of france are taxes upon lands held in property by an ignoble tenure in other countries the tax was laid upon the supposed profits of all those who held in farm or lease lands belonging to other people whatever might be the tenure by which the proprietor held them and in this case the tale was said to be personal in the greater part of those provinces of france which are called the countries of elections the tale is of this kind the real tale as it is imposed only upon a part of the lands of the country is necessarily an unequal but it is not always an arbitrary tax though it is so upon some occasions the personal tale as it is intended to be proportioned to the profits of a certain class of people which can only be guessed at is necessarily both arbitrary and unequal in france the personal tale at present 
1775, annually imposed upon the twenty generalities, called the countries of elections, amounts to 40,107,239 livres, 16 sous. The proportion in which this sum is assessed upon those different provinces varies from year to year, according to the reports which are made to the king's council concerning the goodness or badness of the crops as well as other circumstances, which may either increase or diminish their respective abilities to pay. Each generality is divided into a certain number of elections, and the proportion in which the sum imposed upon the whole generality is divided among those different elections varies likewise from year to year, according to the reports made to the council concerning their respective abilities. It seems impossible that the council, with the best intentions, can ever proportion, with tolerable exactness, either of these two assessments to the real abilities of the province or district upon which they are respectively laid. Ignorance and misinformation must always, more or less, mislead the most upright council. The proportion which each parish ought to support of what is assessed upon the whole election, and that which each individual ought to support of what is assessed upon his particular parish, are both in the same manner varied from year to year, according as circumstances are supposed to require. These circumstances are judged of, in the one case, by the officers of the election, in the other, by those of the parish, and both the one and the other are, more or less, under the direction and influence of the intendant. Not only ignorance and misinformation, but friendship, party animosity, and private resentment are said frequently to mislead such assessors. No man subject to such a tax, it is evident, can ever be certain, before he is assessed, of what he is to pay. He cannot even be certain after he is assessed. If any person has been taxed who ought to have been exempted, or if any person has been taxed beyond his proportion, though both must pay in the meantime, Yet if they complain, and make good their complaints, the whole parish is reimposed next year in order to reimburse them. If any of the contributors become bankrupt or insolvent, the collector is obliged to advance his tax, and the whole parish is reimposed next year in order to reimburse the collector. If the collector himself should become bankrupt, the parish which elects him must answer for his conduct to the receiver-general of the election. But, as it might be troublesome for the receiver to prosecute the whole parish, he takes at his choice five or six of the richest contributors, and obliges them to make good what had been lost by the insolvency of the collector. The parish is afterwards reimposed, in order to reimburse those five or six. Such reimpositions are always over and above the tail of the particular year in which they are laid on. When a tax is imposed upon the profits of stock in a particular branch of trade, the traders are all careful to bring no more goods to market than what they can sell at a price sufficient to reimburse them from advancing the tax. Some of them withdraw a part of their stocks from the trade, and the market is more sparingly supplied than before. The price of the goods rises, and the final payment of the tax falls upon the consumer. But when a tax is imposed upon the profits of stock employed in agriculture, it is not the interest of the farmers to withdraw any part of their stock from that employment. Each farmer occupies a certain quantity of land, for which he pays rent. For the proper cultivation of this land, a certain quantity of stock is necessary, and by withdrawing any part of this necessary quantity, the farmer is not likely to be more able to pay either the rent or the tax. In order to pay the tax, it can never be his interest to diminish the quantity of his produce, nor consequently to supply the market more sparingly than before. 
The tax, therefore, will never enable him to raise the price of his produce, so as to reimburse himself by throwing the final payment upon the consumer. The farmer, however, must have his reasonable profit as well as every other dealer. Otherwise, he must give up the trade. After the imposition of a tax of this kind, he can get this reasonable profit only by paying less rent to the landlord. The more he is obliged to pay in the way of tax, the less he can afford to pay in the way of rent. A tax of this kind, imposed during the currency of a lease, may no doubt distress or ruin the farmer. Upon the renewal of the lease, it must always fall upon the landlord. In the countries where the personal tale takes place, the farmer is commonly assessed in proportion to the stock which he appears to employ in cultivation. He is, upon this account, frequently afraid to have a good team of horses or oxen, but endeavors to cultivate with the meanest and most wretched instruments of husbandry that he can. Such is his distrust in the justice of his assessors, that he counterfeits poverty, and wishes to appear scarce able to pay anything, for fear of being obliged to pay too much. By this miserable policy he does not, perhaps, always consult his own interest in the most effectual manner, and he probably loses more by the diminution of his produce than he saves by that of his tax. Though, in consequence of this wretched cultivation, the market is, no doubt, somewhat worse supplied, yet the small rise of price which this may occasion, as it is not likely even to indemnify the farmer for the diminution of his produce, it is still less likely to enable him to pay more rent to the landlord. The public, the farmer, the landlord, all suffer more or less by this degraded cultivation. That the personal tale tends in many different ways to discourage cultivation, and consequently to dry up the principal source of the wealth of every great country, I have already had occasion to observe in the third book of this inquiry. What are called poll taxes in the southern provinces of North America and the West India Islands, annual taxes of so much a head upon every negro, are properly taxes upon the profits of a certain species of stock employed in agriculture. As the planters are the greater part of them both farmers and landlords, the final payment of the tax falls upon them in their quality of landlords without any retribution. Taxes of so much a head upon the bondmen employed in cultivation seem anciently to have been common all over Europe. There subsists at present a tax of this kind in the empire of Russia. It is probably upon this account that poll taxes of all kinds have often been represented as badges of slavery. Every tax, however, is to the person who pays it a badge not of slavery, but of liberty. It denotes that he is subject to government, indeed, but that, as he has some property, he cannot himself be the property of a master. A poll tax upon slaves is altogether different from a poll tax upon freemen. The latter is paid by the persons upon whom it is imposed, the former by a different set of persons. The latter is either altogether arbitrary or altogether unequal, and in most cases is both the one and the other. The former, though in some respects unequal, different slaves being of different values, is in no respect arbitrary. Every master who knows the number of his own slaves knows exactly what he has to pay. Those different taxes, however, being called by the same name, have been considered as of the same nature. The taxes which Holland imposed upon men and maid-servants are taxes not upon stock, but upon expense, and so far resemble the taxes upon consumable commodities. The tax of a guinea a head for every man-servant, which has lately been imposed in Great Britain, 
is of the same kind. It falls heaviest upon the middling rank. A man of two hundred a year may keep a single manservant. A man of ten thousand a year will not keep fifty. It does not affect the poor. Taxes upon the profits of stock, in particular employments, can never affect the interest of money. Nobody will lend his money for less interest to those who exercise the tax than those who exercise the untaxed employments. Taxes upon the revenue arising from stock in all employments, where the government attempts to levy them with any degree of exactness, will, in many cases, fall upon the interest of money. The vintium, or twentieth penny, in France, is a tax of the same kind with what is called the land tax in England, and is assessed, in the same manner, upon the revenue arising from land, houses, and stock. So far as it affects stock, it is assessed, though not with great rigor, yet with much more exactness than that part of the land tax in England which is imposed upon the same fund. It, in many cases, falls altogether upon the interest of money. Money is frequently sunk in France upon what are called contracts for the constitution of a rent, that is, perpetual annuities, redeemable at any time by the debtor upon payment of the sum originally advanced, but of which this redemption is not exigible by the creditor except in particular cases. The vintium seems not to have raised the rate of those annuities, though it is exactly levied upon them all. Appendix to Articles 1 and 2 taxes upon the capital value of lands houses and stocks while property remains in the possession of the same person whatever permanent taxes may have been imposed upon it they have never been intended to diminish or take away any part of its capital value but only some part of the revenue arising from it but when property changes hands when it is transmitted either from the dead to the living or from the living to the living such taxes have frequently been imposed upon it as necessarily take away some part of its capital value the transference of all sorts of property from the dead to the living and that of immovable property of land and houses from the living to the living are transactions which are in their nature either public and notorious or such as cannot be long concealed such transactions therefore may be taxed directly The transference of stock or movable property, from the living to the living, by the lending of money, is frequently a secret transaction, and may always be made so. It cannot easily, therefore, be taxed directly. It has been taxed indirectly in two different ways. First, by requiring that the deed, containing the obligation to repay, should be written upon paper or parchment which had paid a certain stamp duty, otherwise not to be valid. Secondly, by requiring under the like penalty of invalidity that it should be recorded either in a public or secret register, and by imposing certain duties upon such registration. Stamp duties and duties of registration have frequently been imposed likewise upon the deeds transferring property of all kinds from the dead to the living, and upon those transferring immovable property from the living to the living, transactions which might easily have been taxed directly. The Vecima Hereditatum, or the twentieth penny of inheritances, imposed by Augustus upon the ancient Romans, was a tax upon the transference of property from the dead to the living. Dion Cassius, the author who writes concerning it the least indistinctly, says it was imposed upon all successions, legacies, and donations, in case of death, except upon those to the nearest relations, and to the poor. Of the same kind is the Dutch tax upon successions. Collateral successions are taxed according to the degree of relation from five to thirty per cent upon the whole value of the succession. 
testamentary donations or legacies to collaterals are subject to the like duties those from husband to wife or from wife to husband the fiftieth penny the luctuosa hereditas the mournful succession of ascendants to descendants to the twentieth penny only direct successions or those of descendants to ascendants pay no tax the death of a father to such of his children as live in the same house with him is seldom attended with any increase and frequently with a considerable diminution of revenue by the loss of his industry of his office or of some life-rent estate of which he may have been in possession that tax would be cruel and oppressive which aggravated their loss by taking from them any part of his succession it may however sometimes be otherwise with those children who in the language of the roman law are said to be emancipated in that of the scotch law to be forus familiated that is who have received their portion have got families of their own and are supported by funds separate and independent of those of their father whatever part of his succession might come to such children would be a real addition to their fortune and might therefore perhaps without more inconveniency than what attends all duties of this kind be liable to some tax the casualties of the feudal law were taxes upon the transference of land both from the dead to the living and from the living to the living in ancient times they constituted in every part of europe one of the principal branches of the revenue of the crown the heir of every immediate vassal of the crown paid a certain duty generally a year's rent upon receiving the investiture of the estate if the heir was a minor the whole rents of the estate during the continuance of the minority devolved to the superior without any other charge besides the maintenance of the minor and the payment of the widow's dower when there happened to be a dowager upon the land when the minor came to be of age another tax called relief was still due to the superior which generally amounted likewise to a year's rent a long minority which in the present times so frequently disburdens a great estate of all its encumbrances and restores the family to their ancient splendor could in those times have no such effect the waste and not the disencumbrance of the estate was the common effect of a long minority by a feudal law the vassal could not alienate without the consent of his superior who generally extorted a fine or composition on granting it this fine which was at first arbitrary came in many countries to be regulated at a certain portion of the price of the land in some countries where the greater part of the other feudal customs have gone into disuse this tax upon the alienation of land still continues to make a very considerable branch of the revenue of the sovereign in the canton of bern it is so high as a sixth part of the price of all noble fiefs and a tenth part of that of all ignoble ones in the canton of lucerne the tax upon the sale of land is not universal and takes place only in certain districts but if any person sells his land in order to remove out of the territory he pays ten per cent upon the whole price of the sale taxes of the same kind upon the sale either of all lands or of lands held by certain tenures take place in many other countries and make a more or less considerable branch of the revenue of the sovereign such transactions may be taxed indirectly by means either of stamp duties or of duties upon registration and those duties either may or may not be proportioned to the value of the subject which is transferred in great britain the stamp duties are higher or lower not so much according to the value of the property transferred an eighteen penny or half crown stamp being sufficient upon a bond for the largest sum of money as according to the nature of the deed 
the highest do not exceed six pounds upon every sheet of paper or skin of parchment and these high duties fall chiefly upon grants from the crown and upon certain law proceedings without any regard to the value of the subject there are in great britain no duties on the registration of deeds or writings except the fees of the officers who keep the register and these are seldom more than a reasonable recompense for their labour the crown derives no revenue from them in holland there are both stamp duties and duties upon registration which in some cases are and in some are not proportioned to the value of the property transferred all testaments must be written upon stamped paper of which the price is proportioned to the property disposed of so that there are stamps which cost from threepence or three stivers a sheet to three hundred florins equal to about twenty-seven pounds ten shillings of our money if the stamp is of an inferior price to what the testator ought to have made use of his succession is confiscated this is over and above all their other taxes on succession except bills of exchange and some other mercantile bills all other deeds bonds and contracts are subject to a stamp duty this duty however does not rise in proportion to the value of the subject all sales of land and of houses and all mortgages upon either must be registered and upon registration pay a duty to the state of two and a half per cent upon the amount of the price or of the mortgage this duty is extended to the sale of all ships and vessels of more than two tons burden whether decked or undecked these it seems are considered as a sort of houses upon the water the sale of movables when it is ordered by a court of justice is subject to the like duty of two and a half per cent in france there are both stamp duties and duties upon registration the former are considered as a branch of the aids of excise and in the provinces where those duties take place are levied by the excise officers the latter are considered as a branch of the domain of the crown and are levied by a different set of officers those modes of taxation by stamp duties and by duties upon registration are a very modern invention in the course of little more than a century however stamp duties have in europe become almost universal and duties upon registration extremely common there is no art which one government sooner learns of another than that of draining money from the pockets of the people taxes upon the transference of property from the dead to the living fall finally as well as immediately upon the persons to whom the property is transferred taxes upon the sale of land fall altogether upon the seller the seller is almost always under the necessity of selling and must therefore take such a price as he can get the buyer is scarce ever under the necessity of buying and will therefore only give such a price as he likes he considers what the land will cost him in tax and price together the more he is obliged to pay in the way of tax the less he will be disposed to give in the way of price such taxes therefore fall almost always upon a necessitous person and must therefore be frequently very cruel and oppressive taxes upon the sale of new-built houses where the building is sold without the ground fall generally upon the buyer because the builder must generally have his profit otherwise he must give up the trade if he advances the tax therefore the buyer must generally repay it to him taxes upon the sale of old houses for the same reason as those upon the sale of land fall generally upon the seller whom in most cases either conveniency or necessity obliges to sell the number of new-built houses that are annually brought to market is more or less regulated by the demand unless the demand is such as to afford the builder his profit 
after paying all expenses, he will build no more houses. The number of old houses which happen at any time to come to market is regulated by accidents, of which the greater part have no relation to the demand. Two or three great bankruptcies in a mercantile town will bring many houses to sale, which must be sold for what can be got for them. Taxes upon the sale of ground rents fall altogether upon the seller, for the same reason as those upon the sale of lands. Stamp duties, and duties upon the registration of bonds and contracts for borrowed money, fall altogether upon the borrower, and, in fact, are always paid by him. Duties of the same kind upon law proceedings fall upon the suitors. They reduce to both the capital value of the subject in dispute. The more it costs to acquire any property, the less must be the neat value of it when acquired. All taxes upon the transference of property of every kind, so far as they diminish the capital value of that property, tend to diminish the funds destined for the maintenance of productive labor. They are all more or less unthrifty taxes that increase the revenue of the sovereign, which seldom maintains any but unproductive laborers at the expense of the capital of the people, which maintains none but productive. Such taxes, even when they are proportioned to the value of the property transferred, are still unequal, the frequency of transference not being always equal in property of equal value. When they are not proportioned to this value, which is the case with the greater part of the stamp duties and duties of registration, they are still more so. They are in no respect arbitrary, but are, or may be in all cases, perfectly clear and certain. Though they sometimes fall upon the person who is not very able to pay, the time of payment is, in most cases, sufficiently convenient for him. When the payment becomes due, he must, in most cases, have the more to pay. They are levied at very little expense, and in general subject the contributors to no other inconveniency besides always the unavoidable one of paying the tax. In France, the stamp duties are not much complained of. Those of registration, which they call the control, are. They give occasion, it is pretended, to much extortion in the officers of the farmers general who collect the tax, which is in a great measure arbitrary and uncertain. In the greater part of the libels which have been written against the present system of finances in France, the abuses of the control make a principal article. Uncertainty, however, does not seem to be necessarily inherent in the nature of such taxes. If the popular complaints are well founded, the abuse must arise, not so much from the nature of the tax, as from the want of precision and distinctness in the words of the edicts or laws which impose it. The registration of mortgages, and in general of all rights upon immovable property, as it gives great security both to creditors and purchasers, is extremely advantageous to the public. That of the greater part of deeds of other kinds is frequently inconvenient and even dangerous to individuals, without any advantage to the public. All registers, which, it is acknowledged, ought to be kept secret, ought certainly never to exist. The credit of individuals ought certainly never to depend upon so very slender a security as the probity and religion of the inferior officers of revenue. But where the fees of registration have been made a source of revenue to the sovereign, register offices have commonly been multiplied without end, both for the deeds which ought to be registered, and for those which ought not. In France, there are several different sorts of secret registers. This abuse, though not perhaps a necessary, it must be acknowledged, is a very natural effect of such taxes. 
such stamp duties as those in england upon cards and dice upon newspapers and periodical pamphlets etc are properly taxes upon consumption the final payment falls upon the persons who use or consume such commodities such stamp duties as those upon licenses to retail ale wine and spirituous liquors though intended perhaps to fall upon the profits of the retailers are likewise finally paid by the consumers of those liquors such taxes though called by the same name and levied by the same officers and in the same manner with the stamp duties above mentioned upon the transference of property are however of a quite different nature and fall upon quite different funds end of book five chapter two part d